Welcome to Out of the Blank. another episode of out of the blank podcast here's dale dale for everyone out there listening who might not know who you are would you please introduce yourself uh i'm dale myers uh i wrote a book called with malice lee harvey oswald and the murder of officer jd tippett and i'm also uh fairly well known for doing a computer animation of the kennedy assassination which was featured in 2003 on uh peter jennings special on abc television so before we get to the, the tippet, which is the, how I kind of found you through your book, because this is like, like I was mentioning off air, this is one area where everyone seemed to not really spend a whole lot of time in. Jay, we're more focused on the actual assassination of JFK. And I'm pretty sure for a lot of people, they might not even know that there was another person that was killed that same day. Um, everyone kind of focuses around the president because, you know, it's everybody's attention is the main leader of the country at, the, at this time. But I like to look at details, I like to look at everything and the value of another life that also was lost that day is not something just to scoff at or walk away from just because you care more about the president. So it caused my interest in wanting to figure out this one spot or this one particular area. But about the film, for instance, when you're talking about um, the animation, what exactly is that? Well, I, back in 1993, I did a computer reconstruction of the Kennedy assassination based on uh, the Zapruder film. I had this idea, and this was very early in the desktop computer revolution. Um, I had the gear. I was uh, getting into it as far as a business to do graphics and so forth for various Fortune 500 companies. And um, I also had an interest in the Kennedy assassination and had had an interest for a long time. Uh, maybe I should back up a little bit. I got into radio in 1975, and uh, that was the year that the Zapruder film was first broadcast in March of that year on the Geraldo Rivera show. And uh, there was a kid that came up to the radio station the following summer and he says, our teacher had the, had the Zapruder film and I'd never seen, I didn't see the original broadcast. I'd never seen the film. I of course had heard about it. Uh, he says, our teacher showed us the film. And uh, I said, well, where did he get it? He says, well, there's some guy selling one. I says, get me the address. Well, it turned out to be a guy named Penn Jones down in Texas. And uh, so I ordered a copy for $15, $20. I can't remember exactly what. And uh, it came a couple of weeks later. And I had a little hand crank viewer and I looked at it and I was mesmerized by this, uh, as everyone is once they see it. And so I went to the local library uh, and I was up in upstate uh, Michigan and uh, was looking for a book about the Zapruder film, found one. It turned out to be a book called Six Seconds in Dallas by Josiah Thompson, which was one of the premier conspiracy books at the time. Uh, came out in 1967, actually. Uh, took that home, read it, and I thought, wow, there's a lot more to this than I ever remembered. I was about eight years old at the time of the assassination, but I do remember uh, it vividly and the reaction of our family and so forth. Anyway, I started scrounging and looked, getting every book I could on the subject and eventually really got into the case to the point where I read all the books available, the magazine articles I could get my hands on, and then began researching and writing letters to the National Archives and really going deep, getting access to documents and photographs and so forth. All right, so flash forward now, 
1993, I'd gotten out of radio after a 10-year career, uh, was getting into computer uh, animation, uh, in, which was in its infancy at the time. And I had this idea way back when. I thought, you know, the Zapruder film has a very handheld, shaky uh, sort of aspect to it. It's very difficult to see what's going on. And I originally thought of getting a couple of friends and setting them in folding chairs and then photographing them with a Super 8 camera, one frame at a time, and aligning them to match each frame. And this was my early idea of I could maybe stabilize the film somehow, or at least the action that was happening in the film, uh, to be able to see what's going on. Well, I never really did that. But in 1993, when I got the computer uh, equipment, I started looking at the software I was using, and I realized I could bring in actually the, the actual frame, and I could superimpose it over a three-dimensional model. So I took that original idea of putting two friends in a folding chair and I thought, you know, I could actually build 3D models and match it to the Zapruder film and recreate the film frame by frame. And then I would be able to strip out that handheld shakiness and be able to see finally what Zapruder had captured, what actually happened at the scene. And so I began that project in late 1992, I had the idea around then. And about mid-1993, I had done enough of the model. I got my hands on blueprints of the book depository and all kinds of stuff. And created the model, the model of the car and the figures. And I remember it was a Wednesday night where I finally had enough information to do a trajectory analysis. So I hooked a, uh, a trajectory from Conley's back wound to Kennedy's throat wound. And I just projected it rearward. One thing I noticed is that the intersection point on Kennedy's back was very close to where the back wound allegedly was. I thought, well, I'm onto something here. And uh, I was actually, because I'll tell you, Robbie, when, when you read the conspiracy information, well, you read the literature that's out there, 90% of it is conspiracy oriented. So in 1993, I thought there was a conspiracy. I fully expected the trajectory to go back to a different building. That's what I've been reading all along. When I projected that line rearward, however, I found that it actually went right back to the sixth floor sniper's nest. So I remember that night and then in the uh, subsequent months, I created error cones to test for, you know, the model could be off a little bit here or there. And I wanna make sure that I incorporated all the aspects to make sure that, okay, is, is this solid? Is, is this true? And it turned out that it was from what I had done. Now, the interesting thing about this is a lot of people, of course, have to take my word for the model and its accuracy. I don't have to do that because I did the work. I'm the guy who did it. So I knew that from my own personal perspective, I knew that what I had done was accurate, was done correctly, and I knew that the results were true and, uh, and accurate. And so uh, it came to the public's attention many years later in 2003 uh, Peter Jennings was putting together uh, a special for the 40th anniversary, and there's a friend of mine, Gus Russo, who was working with Jennings, and the Jennings group asked if there was anything new in the case, anything that had uh, come up in the intervening years that would be interesting to their audience. He said, I know a guy that did this computer recreation. So he put me in touch with them. I ended up flying to New York. I did a little dog and pony show for about eight hours and basically walked them through what I did. And they were, they were stunned. They were mesmerized by the whole thing. Eventually, uh, they hired Z-Axis Corporation, a computer, a forensic computer a reconstruction firm that had done a, uh, done a lot of courtroom work uh, on the Oklahoma City bombing, bombing the, uh, the Twin Towers uh, collapse, uh, uh, 
there was an airline crash in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, many years before. And so they were well respected as, uh, as having done quality work that was forensically accurate. And as it turned out, uh, they were in a perfect position to vet my work because they used the same software. So uh, ABC flew these two guys up to my home. I was a little nervous, to be honest, Robbie. I mean, I thought, wow, what if I miss something? I mean, I'm just a computer animator. I mean, I'm using my, my noodle, my ingenuity to figure this out. I thought, what if I miss something? Anyway, they came up. I walked them through how I built the models, the blueprints, and so forth. And uh, at the end of the day, they basically said, well, uh, what's the slope of the road? I said, well, it's supposed to be about three degrees. So I took a couple of points off my model, and they pumped them into a little sign calculator. And then, well, you're close. 2.96 is what they had on my, on my model. And they said, well, how, how high up is the window? And so forth. So they measured a couple of points on the model. And really, when you get down to it, you know, all the trees and the, the nice rendered look of the model is all wonderful. But all you really need is a couple of points in space, the position of those wounds and the relationship of those positions to the window. And uh, anyway, they walked through the whole thing and ended up vetting my work and said that not only had I done it correctly, but I had gone well beyond what would be necessary in a courtroom. So that felt good that, that I knew I had, I had done a, a good job and a thorough job. And that's sort of what I do. Uh, anyway, the show aired in 2003 and I've been kicked around by the conspiracy theorists ever since. Now, why do you think that there's so many conspiracies behind it? Cause like, I know are, are, like for like the bullet hole in the neck. Now there, my introduction into JFK was my junior year of high school. I saw uh, the Zapruder film where JFK was shot. And the very first thing I noticed was that when he grabbed his throat and he went like this and does this little like double hands grab type deal where I thought a bullet went through his throat, but there was no exit wound out of the back of his throat or there was no entrance from the back to exit out the front. There was nothing in that part of the back. But when they do the autopsy or they do um, the recordings of it or the record that they have, they when they were doing the tracheotomy, the bullet was stopped by the spine but we don't have any fragments of that bullet. So it leaks into like conspiracy territory where you start wondering was, was there more than one shooter? Now, I don't know, but if a bullet's coming from behind, like it was said, this come from a book suppository building. And if it was shot, did it go through his back and did it go out his neck? Like I, I'm, I, I, I'm like confused because I've heard people say this Zapruder film was a hoax. I don't know how you would be able to modify it. I'm not all in depth onto that, but I definitely think like there was a rush, a really rush job with the Warren Commission about trying to wrap this up with a nice fancy bow. That doesn't mean that there might not be just a lone gunman. There might be more, or there is just one. What I'm saying is, is that a lot of the stuff that should have been thoroughly sat through and looked through, there's just, it seemed like it was rushed really, really quickly, whether it was just to give an answer to the public or something of that sort. But how do you account for like a bullet hole in the neck, um, the Harper fragment from the skull, because I've seen the pictures that they have where the Harper fragment, it gets shot in the back of the head and it caused it to explode. But then also, if you read the report, it says that the was him lunging forward was from that bullet hit. And then it hit a nerve, which caused his body to lean back. And I was just like, like, this is like, I mean, I don't know. Where, where do you, out of everything I said, does anything like make sense? Like I'm trying to critically think about this because I am 24. I am young. I was not around when this all happened. So I'm looking back at documents and what you will find when you look back is more probably conspiracy stuff at the top of the list and the more accurate depictions. Now, I probably agree more or in alignment with Jefferson Morley when it comes to data and facts. We need the facts. We need the data. There's things we know and there's things we don't know. Anything that's in the archives is what he kind of goes off of. 
but I also have the other side of me that kind of links in with Jacob Hornberger, where I start going, I have this idea that yes, that the government isn't always trustworthy. And I know that from the Watergate scandal and a bunch of other things that there are plans and actual documents recorded that they were going to do. So I just lean in this area of like, I'm trying to sort it out as much as possible. And I'm hoping you can help me out with the things I just said. Well, you've thrown a lot of stuff up there on the wall, Robbie, uh, and perfectly understandable. Uh, let me tell you about my journey. Maybe this will help you clue in. I went all the way around the barn. I started where you started with reading material about the first generation material. In other words, people commenting on documents they had read and drawing a conspiracy from that. Eventually after reading all of that and being convinced while well, they've got something here, I mean, who would publish a book that had lies in it? So then I started, or I started going into the back of their books where they're talking about, here's the footnotes, here's the documents I'm talking about. I started ordering those. So now I go back to their primary sources. I started finding out, well, wait a minute, they took this out of context. So I started finding out that a lot of what they were saying wasn't true at all. There was a thread of truth through it, as there are in all lies, but they took things out of context, they left things out by omission and so forth. Anyway, so I started not relying on books. I started relying on primary sources. Now, I've been doing this long enough that some of the people that were in uh, interviews, uh, witnesses, and so forth, people that were there were still alive at the time. A lot of them have passed on since then. So I had an additional opportunity to actually call people and talk to them or interview them in person uh, that were uh, involved in the case in some way. So after doing all of that work, I started with the idea of a conspiracy, went all the way around the barn and ended up coming back and saying, wait a minute, no, it's not that cut and dry. Uh, so I understand where you're coming from. There's 5 million pages plus of original material that was generated by the Warren Commission. First off, their investigation, I don't think was shoddy. It, was, it wasn't a rushed thing. I mean, if you want to call it 10 month intensive investigation performed by an army of FBI agents, and I know we don't put much credibility in the FBI these days, but at the time there was a great deal of credibility. And if you read the documents, you look at all the loose ends they chased on. I mean, there's just a ton of material. Most people are not going to read all that. You haven't had the time to read all that. I haven't had the time to read all of it, but I've read a great deal of it. So uh, let me let me let's go back to the uh, the wounds first off. At the Parkland Hospital, they never turned the president over. They did not know he had a back wound. There was a small and it looked like an entrance wound in the throat, which led to newspaper accounts at the time that the president had been shot from the front. And originally, they actually thought that it hit the spine. The bullet ricocheted up and blew the back of his head off. Uh, that turned out not to be the case. That's why we have autopsies, to, to verify things that have come out earlier that may not be accurate. And I'm not saying that the Parkland doctors weren't great men that uh, were doing their jobs, just that in the situation, they didn't have the time to examine the body as an autopsist would. So there was an entrance wound. The thing about the entrance wound in the back is that it was high in the back, right shoulder, or low in the neck. I mean, however you want to, it's in that area. And uh, it was an entrance wound. It was clear as an entrance wound. There was an abrasion collar around it. The x-rays show that there's a line of bubbles, air bubbles that trace between that and the front of the throat. Because the back wound was an entrance wound, we know that the, the exit wound had to be the throat. Now, Normally, an exit wound is larger than an entrance wound. So people, of course, say, well, how can that be in this case? It looks like the throat wound is actually 
smaller. And of course, we never saw it because a tracheostomy was performed and was cut through. But as described by uh, Dr. Perry, the original surgeon, he thought it might be an entrance wound. But we also know that the collar in that area, he had the, the shirt in that area was tight. He had a tie on and so forth. And all of those things would contribute to a bullet uh, exiting and not creating a large gaping hole, especially if that bullet was still relatively in line. In any event, we also know that Conley was sitting directly in front of the president. This is where the whole single bullet theory comes out. The question arose during the Warren Commission investigation, where did the bullet that hit Kennedy in the back and apparently exited his throat, it's not in the body, where did it go? It's on a trajectory. It has to hit the car or someone in it. They scoured the car. There were no obvious bullet holes. That bullet would have still been moving at about 1,800 feet per second, which means it would put a hole in steel, glass, upholstery, anything. They found no bullet holes in the limousine. So the next question arose, well, was anybody else wounded? Yes. Who? Governor Connolly. Where was he seated? In front of the president. From that, you can extrapolate immediately. They're both hit by the same bullet. Then you look at the Zapruder film and you see they both react at the same time. Now, I know there's been interpretations of the Zapruder film. You threw out the uh, suggestion that the film had been altered. I can address that immediately. It's an eight millimeter film. The size of the image within that frame, the size of the image that contains Kennedy and Conley at their largest, when they're coming out from behind the sign, would fit on the head of a pin. There's no technology at the time. We have digital technology. We can go in and do Photoshop and we can do after effects and all sorts of things. You would have to do this practically with a razor blade or some such device. It would have to be done as an, with an optical printer. The images were too small to be able to do that within a, and within what a week, they were published in Life magazine, several frames. Those frames have not been altered. Even if someone wanted to alter the film, you could never be certain that another film would not come forward, and other films did come forward later, uh, that would show the assassination sequence and the jig would be up because they wouldn't match all of a sudden. Matter of fact, it always made sense to me, why would you alter the film, go through all the trouble, just get rid of it, <laughs> right? So anyway, you can go off the deep end and down the rabbit hole with the conspiracy theories because, they're, because there's all kinds of them. But getting back to the wounds, Governor Conley was hit by a bullet in the, uh, just below the shoulder blade on the right side or near the armpit, I should say. And that bullet had a slight yaw to it. We know from ballistic tests and uh, Luke Haig and his son Michael have done a ton of uh, forensic uh, tests using the exact ammunition that Oswald used. They found that the six, uh, five millimeter um, ammunition that he used has the bullets have a unique property when in flight. One of the things is, is that they, they will yaw immediately upon passing, after passing through a short, uh, they did gelatin blocks or whatever, but anything leaving the president's neck would begin to yaw immediately. The fact that the bullet that hit Conley was in yaw, so it created a slight elliptical hole, indicates that it hit something first. So Conley, the bullet that hits him is not, has hit something else, a twig, a branch, a person. And again, because they're in a line, which is what the computer recreation that I did uh, shows, because they align, we know that the bullet has to hit Conley. That bullet passed through Kennedy, it's heading in a downward trajectory, 
It's got to hit something or somebody in the car. Conley is turned in such a way that it strikes him. And once the bullet strikes him, of course, it rides along his uh, fifth uh, rib, sort of along the, the edge of the wall, it didn't pass through his chest, kind of tumbled around the edge of the wall, exited, and then went into the back of his wrist, out the palm side of the wrist, and eventually buried itself in his left thigh. So even if you didn't have the Zapruder film to back any of this up, forensically, from, a, from that standpoint, the bullet that was found on the stretcher at Parkland Hospital, and I know I've heard people, well, it was planted and so forth and so on. How could they know all that, right? Within the time period that the bullet was found, how could they know the rifle was going to be found and so forth? So, I mean, we can go down the rabbit hole on that as well. But the bottom line is, is that that bullet was fired from the rifle that Oswald purchased back in uh, March of 1963. And the rifle that was found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, the opposite corner from the sniper's nest, under the sniper's nest, three shells, the forensic evidence alone tells you whoever's holding that rifle, that's where the fatal bullets came from, both the headshot, they found fragments that were matched to that rifle and so forth. So to me, from a forensic state, if you didn't have the film, I think the film actually adds confusion to the case because it can be interpreted. It's a silent film. You don't hear any gunshots. And so it allows people to interpret. And, uh, you know, I looked at it. I can only say uh, for certain uh, for certain that Kennedy and Conley are hit by frame 223. How much earlier than that? Probably not much. But in terms of the alignment, they align anywhere after frame 217, let's say, 218. So we're only talking a very short period of time, four or five frames, uh, that they could have been hit. Um, we certainly know where the headshot, but as far as the first shot, which apparently missed the car completely, it's anybody's guess. Now, I've looked at the reaction of Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy in the car and the president in the car. And Conley always had said that after he heard the first shot, he turned to his right because he immediately recognized it as a rifle shot, thought it was an assassination attempt, turned to his right to look over his right shoulder, couldn't see the president from his peripheral vision, was going to turn, was in the process of turning to look back to his left. And as he swung this way, he felt himself get hit. Um, so you look in the film, there's only one point where that happens in the film. It's right around 160. You see Conley's head snap over. He starts to turn this way. They slide behind the sign. He's starting to turn back. He's hit. So to me, the film, if I'm, if I'm guessing, if I'm interpreting, uh, based on his testimony and Mrs. Kennedy's uh, reaction seems to back this up, he's heard a shot by frame 160. How much earlier than that? Again, it's open to interpretation. How fast does a person react? So, but, you know, I would say that the, uh, the Zapruder film actually adds uh, the ability to interpret. And although a lot of people say, well, this is truth. We're looking at truth. Well, we're only looking at truth through a window. So we're only, and we're only seeing one view of it. One of the things I thought my computer recreation added to this was the ability to move that camera and place it in the position of the sniper, any eyewitness and view the assassination once I had recreated it, view that sequence from any position in the plaza. And so you could, you could verify eyewitness accounts and so forth. For instance, Howard Brennan was sitting on a stone wall across from the book depository. He said he heard the first shot as the car. And then he said, I started looking around uh, after the second shot. And once you see his perspective, you see that the limousine actually disappears behind a cement pylon. So from his point of view, after the second shot, he can't even see the car. So in a way that sort of verifies, oh, that explains why he started looking around at that point. 
He couldn't see them, the motorcade at that point through the president's car. So there was a lot of things that the computer uh, recreation that he did added to the case. But the bottom line is, despite the fact that I get kicked around because I guess I'm available uh, for siding on the side of what the Warren Commission came down upon, all that did was, all I did was verify what they had said and what the forensic evidence already shows. Do you think that Kennedy knew that he was going to be an assassination attempt was going to be on his life? Like they had done it, tried to attempt it a couple times before. And it just seemed like I always bring this up with the Zapruder film is that if you see him look over and make eye with the guy who was filming Abraham Zapruder and he looks at the camera, he like stops. His face goes from a happy wave to a like how I do if someone like just holds a phone up to me and like the, in an angle of a gun, you immediately freeze like it is a gun. It's not a gun. It's their phone. But it's like this sense of like, was you already worried about it happening again? You know, did you get that from looking at the film when you see the president just stop and stare at this person? Because I'm guessing they're using a big camera, right? They're not using something that's a small little handheld like a cell phone. It's probably a bigger camera. So, I mean, from that angle, I mean, how the well, distance bigger, the bigger in what sense? Uh, I guess bigger in one sense. I mean, it is it's a small camera. It's, you know, it's so big. He's standing on a pedestal. He's some 70 feet from the president. So when you say he makes eye contact, first off, resolution of the film doesn't show you can see which way their head is pointed, but you can't see. I'm, I could be looking at you, but my eyes could be over this way, right? You can't see that. The resolution is not there. Plus, the pruder is, like I say, 70 feet beyond a sign. When Kennedy's looking, and he never really looks in that direction toward the, toward the car. I mean, he appears to be looking, facing camera as he comes up from behind the sign. I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying that, no, I don't think that... Uh, that he's recognizing Zapruder up on the, on the pedestal or looking in his particular direction. As far as the idea of an assassination attempt, the president certainly was aware that there was a possibility. He had made comments in the past publicly about, you know, if somebody really wants to trade my life, you know, their life for mine, it would be easy get up in a high powered or in a building and with a high powered rifle, there's nothing anybody can do. And of course, that's what happened ironically. But uh, I don't think that, uh, that he was worried or thought that there specifically was to be an attempt made that day or whatever. And when it comes to um, like the magic bullet, for instance, when you're like in, in the autopsy, they did a tracheotomy first. And you mentioned it because no one saw the back hole because they didn't think to flip him onto his backside. But if we're going by the Zapruder film, for instance, wouldn't half of his head be blown off? So why would you be doing a tracheotomy if there was half his head blown off like it, that's that's my only issue with the zapruder film that i found was that the right side of the skull which they found even later on with a harper fragment as well too but that right side of the skull it's like when you see the autopsies of the president it's so hard like you can't see that like it doesn't seem like there's a hole there but when you watch the film i don't know if it's because of blood maybe covered some of his face or something but it seemed like a good portion of his head came off and it doesn't really show that in the after photos unless they were able to like I don't know, in, in the autopsy, like make them look nice or something. I, I have no clue. It's just that anybody that would be looking at a body, you would see the giant missing portion of his head. I don't know if these are, these are just my own questions. I'm looking through these documents. And when I see the film, like I said, that was my initial start. And then I look and see the actual autopsy photo of him lying there with his mouth open. I don't see the whole right side of the head missing, but there's a large amount missing from the back. Well, you don't see that either. I've seen those autopsy photos. I don't know what you're describing as far as the back being missing. The, the autopsy photos as taken at, at Bethesda match what we see in the Zapruder film. The wound apparently is in the, in the right 
the parietal area. It's here, it's not back here. Now, you'll see books that will show all the Parkland doctors with their hand up showing, saying, this is what's gone. But of course, Kennedy's lying on his back. How could they, how could they, they never, they never rolled him over. How could they see the back of the head? I think there's a lot of confusion at Parkland Hospital, understandable confusion. But the bottom line is, is that we see that the, the, the parietal ear, the right parietal, so it's sort of between the ear and the, uh, the forehead. Now, it could have extended back more than we're able to interpret from the Zapruder film. But clearly, first off, the autopsy shows there's an entrance wound in the back of the head. There's no entrance wound anywhere near the front of the head. Secondly, the x-rays show that all of the bullet fragments are right the right part of the skull. There's nothing on the left side. Wake Kennedy was sitting in the so bullet entrance here, an exit apparently somewhere here, and the pressure, because your head is a sealed vacuum, when the bullet passes through, it literally explodes. We see all the shards and the fragments flying forward at the moment of the headshot. And uh, now, here's the other thing to understand. A lot of people, you're watching the Zapruder film, you think you're looking perpendicular into the car, that you're Zapruder and you're looking perpendicular down into the car. But actually, no, the car is cantered at a slight angle and Kennedy is not sitting like this. He's, sitting, he's turned this way and he's leaning forward. So his right front is actually pointing to the left front of the limousine. And I showed that in the computer reconstruction I did. One of the problems, and always was a problem, about a grassy knoll gunman from the traditional stockade fence that's located to the right uh, front of the car is that any bullet coming from anywhere along that fence line, because Kennedy's head is turned, would have to hit him here perpendicular to his head and would have to penetrate the left side of the skull. There is no exit wound on the left side. There are no bullet fragments left of the head. So if you look just at the medical evidence, it's very clear what happened. He struck from behind, bullet passes front, uh, back to front and is relatively re re uh, relegated to the right side, right hemisphere of his head. And that the right side is what blows out. And let's get on to Tippett because, or it's Tippett, right? Is, I'm, am I saying the name right? Yeah, Tippett, T-I-P-P-I-T. -I so that occurred 45 minutes after JFK was assassinated, correct? And then it was attributed to Oswald. Now, when you were writing your book about Tippett, did you go into his past? Did you go into why he was there, why he was at that specific moment? And how did he come across Oswald? I went into the whole thing. Here, you know, I got interested in the Tippett case almost immediately when I first started reading material on the, on the case. And uh, very, what I, struck me was very few books spent much time on it. Some just a paragraph. Uh, some a couple of pages. I think the most somebody wrote at the time was in Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment book in 1966. He had 14 pages dedicated to uh, the Tippett shooting. What I found fascinating was that, and maybe most people don't even know this, J.D. Tippett was a police officer who was shot 45 minutes after the president, about two and a half miles from the scene of Dealey Plaza, where the book depository was. It was his murder that led to the arrest of Oswald in the Texas theater. It was only after they got Oswald back to police headquarters 
that they realized he was an employee of the Texas School Book Depository and then became the prime suspect in the Kennedy assassination. So the entire case against Oswald revolves around the tippet shooting. This was the reason he was arrested. And uh, what I found startling was that very few of these conspiracy books even spent time on that. I thought, well, wait a minute now. And the ones that did, I should say, said it was a frame up, right? They frame up Oswald for killing the cop so they can frame him up for the killing of the president. I thought, well, if that's true, this should be a slam dunk. I mean, I was interested immediately. Let's, let's find out more about this tippet shooting. So the first thing I did is I ordered all the documents that Mark Lane referred to in his 14 pages that he spent in the book, Rush to Judgment. And I referred earlier to the fact that I found out that some of these authors had taken material out of context and Mark Lane was one. I mean, all of the documents came back and either they didn't say what he said it said, or it was so out of context that he had skewed the, the reality of what those documents referred to. Well, that just intrigued me more. So I began digging more and more. Eventually, I uh, ended up interviewing. I was still in radio at the time. Uh, it was in 1983. I was working on a thought, of, thought of doing a radio special. So having the cloud of being at a radio station, I was able to call down and started talking to some of the police officers. I was very interested in any of the cops that checked out of the tippet shooting scene, any of the eyewitnesses that were still around. So I got a chance to interview uh, Ted Calloway, who I still think to this day is one of the best eyewitnesses to the shooting. Even though he didn't see the actual shooting, he was the guy that Oswald ran past and he hollered at him and so forth. Uh, but Ted was uh, a great witness. Uh, the cops were very difficult to interview and largely because of, by 1983, they've been raked over the coals by all these conspiracy books. They were very gun shy of talking to anybody in the press for fear of having their story being skewed as so many had done before me. So that was, uh, that was a tough nut to crack. Uh, one of the things that opened some doors was I got to know a fellow by the name of Jim Lavelle, who's a detective at the Dallas Police Department, probably the most famous police officer in the Kennedy case. He's the one in the, in the tan-colored Stetson hat and jacket when Oswald's being shot, sort of grimacing in horror. Uh, and uh, he opened a lot of doors because everybody respected Jim in the police department. If he said you were okay, then they would talk to you. So uh, after I sort of became friends with Jim, he kind of opened the doors uh, to other police officers that either had never been interviewed or were reluctant to talk. In any event, I spent uh, a good 20 years researching the Tippett case. Uh, now, this is before the internet. And uh, I'm still to this day, I'm not the kind of person that goes on and crows about what I'm working on. I like to wait till it's all done. I like to wait till all the cards are in, I lay it all out, and then I present it. There's a lot of people today that uh, they like the limelight more than the actual evidence. So they'll get in there and you're basically seeing them as they're moving along through their journey. And uh, so in any event, uh, after 20 years, I thought, well, you know, if I, I did it for my own personal reasons, Robbie. I mean, I was, I was just curious for my own personal reasons. After a while, though, I, uh, I thought, you know, if I don't write this down, if I don't present this, then nobody's really going to know all this information that I found out. So I thought, well... I'll, I'll, I'll write a book. And so I put it together in a book and I thought, uh, you know, I didn't want to, I, I did present it to 16 different publishers. They all turned it down. This was in the uh, mid nineties. They turned it down. One of them, one of them actually said, who cares about a cop that nobody ever heard of who was killed? 
uh, after the Kennedy assassination. I just thought that was because people awful. only write books about like 9-11 and giant things. Nobody cares about the other stuff. And I'm like, history is fascinating. It just it's the way you perceive it. You know, I found the Tibbet thing to be the most interesting, not only because there just wasn't a whole lot of information on it, besides maybe a couple of books, but there really wasn't a whole lot of time spent um, in most aspects when it comes to like either conspiracy theories or just giant news headlines, they'll say like this and this. And it's like, why wouldn't you talk about that even more? If you're linking it to Oswald, if you're going to have it in there, you should probably get the history of this person, learn all about their history. What are their decisions that they made that got them to this point? That's important information. Yeah. And uh, so I ended up writing a book and uh, and I thought, well, you know, I'm going to so I'll publish it myself because nobody's going to want to put all of the photographs that I want to put in or all the documents I want to put in, it would, uh, it would not be cost effective uh, for a publishing company to do that. And it wasn't cost effective for me to do it either. But I thought, let's create the definitive book. I did a, a republish in 19, uh, in 2013 for the 50th anniversary. This is it. That's a thick book. Malice. And it's, uh, it's pretty thick. And uh, what, I, what I designed it as was I wanted this to be the definitive go-to investigative file. You know, Oswald was killed 48 hours after he was in custody, so the police never really finished their investigation. So I wrote a book that I thought this is what the police investigation would have been had they had the time to complete it. And I wrote it in such a way that I wanted it to read like a true crime book so you could kind of read through and get the narrative, but then it would be deep enough for those that wanted to go deeper they could look up the footnotes, they could uh, look at the documents, many of them published in the book itself, others referred to, so here's the riff number, here's where you can go to the National Archives and get what I'm talking about. So warts and all, the whole case, here's what happened. And once you see what happened, you can see where the conspiracy people, how they sprung off and, and ran with uh, a conspiracy idea that actually had no merit. And uh, the book is, the most of the reviewers have given it five stars and of course if you go on amazon there's always the people that will give it the one star but i always loved some of the criticism uh meyer's great book great compilation of material i use it for everything but it's just too bad he came to the wrong conclusions you know like the guy that wrote it that spent the most time with this material and had the uh the ability to sit down with people like jim lavelle and other police officers yeah i'm quoting their the transcript that i uh uh, got during the interview with them, but it doesn't substitute for the ability to sit there with that person, look them in the eye. A lot of these guys, you find out, you know, it's like your grandfather. I'm sitting there and within a few minutes, it's like conspiracy theorists have been saying this guy's in on it. And it's like, within minutes, it's like, there's no way this guy's involved in this thing. It'd be like accusing my grandfather of being involved in it. It was absolutely ridiculous. So it was a real eye-opener for me. You know, again, I went all the way around the barn, started with the idea of a conspiracy, but ultimately, slowly convinced myself by overturning every stone there was to overturn uh, that, in fact, no, this was uh, just a, a tragic event. Um, and the short of it, for those that don't know the story, is that 45 minutes after the assassination of the president, most of the officers have been called down to downtown. Some of the outlying officers are brought in a little bit closer so they can go back out and cover their areas or come in to the downtown area, if needed. Tippett was one of them. He's ordered to move into the central Oak Cliff area. By the way, there are police recordings of all of this, right? The vast, all the radio transmissions that day. Uh, surprisingly, it's not online. I'm, uh, you know, this many years after, I don't know why they're not online, but there's, 
there's spotty parts of it are online in any event there's there's a 20 minute um from a call that he was supposed to have Tibbet showed up i think around 103 was that people saying that they um saw Tibbet? Tibbet didn't make it past one one p.m uh three minutes um and there was a call that came in and he didn't answer and the call came in 10 minutes before his alleged time of death um from what i've all seen right, so, right but before we get into all that let's just lay out what happened for everybody okay okay so 45 minutes after the shooting Tibbetts moved into the, actually, he's moved into the Central Oak Cliff area about 15 minutes after the shooting in Dealey Plaza. So at 1245, he's ordered into that area. So he's patrolling in that area, which turns out to be the area where Oswald has a rooming, uh, a room and a boarding house. At, uh, at approximately 115, Oswald, uh, Oswald apparently is walking down 10th Street now, uh, and Tippett is driving down 10th Street. Now, one of the big things that I uncovered is that, uh, or, well, presented, I didn't necessarily uncover it, is that the eyewitnesses reported the guy on the sidewalk, who turns out to be Oswald, to be walking, they report he's walking two different directions. One group of people say he's walking west on 10th Street, coming toward Tippett, so they're coming toward each other. Then there's another group of witnesses say, no, no, they're walking in the same direction, and Tippett overtakes him as he's walking, they're both moving east. Uh, as it turned out, I one of the things that one of the reasons they uh, they speculate that Tippett and there's only speculation because Tippett's dead and there's no way to ask him uh, why he stopped this man. There was a vague description of the uh, presidential shooter, white male, 35, 165 pounds, which would fit a lot of people. So clearly, Tippett's not stopping everyone. But why did he stop this particular guy? Well, when I started looking at the contradiction in the eyewitness accounts of which direction Oswald's walking, and it's a residential neighborhood, you find that one group, it's right before Tippett appears on the scene, and the other group is just as Tippett's pulling over. So I got this idea that maybe both groups are right. So you had conspiracy theorists jumping in and saying, no, the people saying West, that's wrong. People saying East, no, that's wrong. What if they're both right? What if Oswald's actually walking toward the police car, spots the police car approaching, does a quick about face and begins walking away. And Tippett sees this. This would raise his alert. And then he pulls over. And that's the reason, not just the description, but it's the overt action. And in talking with, uh, I can back this up a little bit in that Murray Jackson, who was a dispatcher that day, was also a partner of Tippett in earlier years. And he described to me an incident that happened back in the, the 61 or 62 in which Murray's driving, Tippett's riding shotgun as they're driving down the street. All of a sudden, Tippett says, hey, pull over here the next side street. And Murray says, I didn't know why, but I pulled around a corner. Tippett's out of the car and he's running up to this corner house. He says, I, by the time I parked the car and got up there, Tippett's already got this young man under arrest. It turns out he's a 20-something. He was standing on the porch and he had a firearm in his hand. And as the police car drove by, he made a quick move to hide the gun. And Tippett saw that and immediately said, pull over. And they went up and they ended up arresting this guy for whatever reason, for the firearm or something that he was wanted for. In any event, the point was that Jackson said that Tippett was, you know, this is the way cops are trained, not just J.D. Tippett, but other cops are trained to spot things that you or I wouldn't. So anyway, I think that's what happened on 10th Street, something like that. Oswald spun around, did an overt move. Anyway, Tippett pulls over. Oswald comes over to the passenger side of the car. The window's rolled up, but the vent window is cracked open. So there's a little triangular vent window. They seem to speak through the vent window, maybe 10 seconds. Whatever it is, 
It's enough to get Tippett out of the car, but not enough to alert him. He's not pulling his gun or anything like that. But he gets out of the car, squares his head, begins to walk toward the right, the front of the car. And as he gets right even with the left front fender, all of a sudden Oswald steps back, pulls that handgun out from underneath his jacket and fires from the hip over the car, hitting uh, Tippett four times. Tippett goes down. Oswald flees the scene. He's not only seen by three people that are right there, Helen Markham on the corner, Domingo Benavides was about to drive by, ends up pulling over, throwing himself down on the seat of his pickup truck. Oswald runs around the corner past the cab driver, happens to be sitting there having lunch, down the street on Patton toward Jefferson, which is the main boulevard, past Ted Calloway, a used car salesman. He comes out to the sidewalk. He sees Oswald coming by. He says, hey, man, what the hell's going on? He just sees a guy running with a gun. He thought he was a detective maybe or something. No idea what had happened. He'd heard the shots. I thought he was most credible on the shots, too. He was a World War II vet, had served on the Marshall Islands, uh, was at Iwo Jima, saw many dead guys, he told me. He said, but he recognized those gunshots, and he says, I can hear the cadence in my head today. And he was in his 80s at the time I talked to him. He said, the reason I remember the cadence is it reminded me instantly of Morse code. They had Morse code training during World War II. And he said, it sounded like dash, dash, dot, dot, dot. So bang, 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 five shots. In any event, as he's running by, he says, hey, man, what the hell is going on? And uh, Oswald sort of realizes he's drawing attention to himself. He slows down, kind of shrugs, said something. Callaway didn't hear. He continues to Jefferson Boulevard. By then, there's four other guys in a used car lot. So there's a lot of people seeing him flee the scene who later identified Oswald as the person fleeing. And eventually makes his way down Jefferson Boulevard, ducks behind a Texaco service station, dumps his jacket apparently to uh, disguise himself. Police end up pouring into the scene. It takes uh, Oswald about 20 minutes to work his way about six or seven blocks west to uh, the area of the Texas theater. As he gets in that block where the theater is located, there's a shoe store. He steps into the vestibule. The shoe store manager, uh, Johnny Brewer, spots him, sees him kind of, he's feigning like he's looking at the, at the shoes, but he keeps looking over his shoulder at police cars that are ripping up and down with their sirens blaring. When one retreats, he turns, he starts going up the street toward the Texas theater. Brewer is so suspicious, he walks out on the sidewalk. He's now standing behind Oswald. He, see, he can see, that is Brewer, can see the ticket taker has come out of the, the ticket taker booth, and she's standing at the sidewalk looking in the same direction Brewer is, and Oswald's between them. So she's looking away from Oswald at a police car that's going up the street, and they're wondering what's happening. But Brewer, behind her back, he can see Oswald turn and slip into the Texas theater. So based on the suspicion he just saw, and when he just uh, saw Oswald slip into the theater, he walks up the street. He knew Julia Postal, the ticket taker. He says, hey, did that guy buy a ticket? And she kind of turned. She remembered peripherally seeing him approaching and realized well, he hadn't passed her. So apparently he'd gone into the theater. She said, well, no, he didn't. So Bruce says, that might be the guy they're looking for. Anyway, they go in, they think he's in the theater, they come out. He recommends, Brewer does, to Julia Postal, call the police. Maybe this is who they're looking for. Now, Brewer said that he had heard a report on the, on the regular commercial radio that a police officer had been shot in Oak Cliff. And he, so he thought that's what this might be about. Julia Postle didn't know about the police officer. She'd been listening about the Kennedy assassination, and she thought that's what it was about. Anyway, she calls the cops. They pour into the theater, and of course, they find here's Oswald sitting third row from the back, 
And Nick McDonald's the first officer to approach him. He says, get on your feet. Oswald stands up without being asked. He brings his hands up to his shoulder height. And as he gets about this high, he's, he says to McDonald, he says, it's all over now. And all of a sudden, he punches him with his left hand. As McDonald goes down to the seat, Oswald reaches into his right uh, waistband and pulls that gun out. McDonald reaches up and grabs the gun. They're, you're trained as a police officer to grab that cylinder and keep it from turning. And uh, apparently it does turn, but he gets the webbing of his hand in between the trigger and the, uh, the firing pin. And the gun snaps, but doesn't fire it. A charge. By then, there are other police officers that are nearby. They they hustle in and they grapple Oswald and put him under arrest. So here you've got uh, they take him back to police headquarters. I'll just end the story this way, and this is the, sort of the area the, the book covers, and then goes into all the evidence and why and so forth. But they get him back to police headquarters as he's marched in. There's three employees from the Texas School Book Depository that work with Oswald. They go, "Wow, there's Lee. They're bringing him in." And the, and the police officers that are doing the interviews, they know this guy is being brought in for the shooting of the police officer. They go, what, wait, you know this guy? Well, yeah, he works at the book depository. Next minute, Captain Fritz walks in. He says, yeah, we just got a, we got a, a report here. There's a guy missing from a roll call. Lee Oswald this is out in Irving. Can you go out and get him? And they go, wait a minute, what was that name, Captain? He says, Lee Oswald. He says, we'll save you the trip. That's him. He was just brought in for the shooting of the police officer. So you know, and I know that from the police standpoint, they knew right then they've got the prime suspect in the Kennedy assassination. Hmm. Um, did you find anything, I guess, off or a little bit weird that you had questions about when you were looking into the death of Oswald or not death of Oswald, death of uh, Tibbet? Uh, all of it. I mean, what, like I say, when I started, I'm thinking it's a big frame up. They framed Oswald, you know, all the charges that I've been reading about, they switched the shells and so forth and so on. Um, but as as you begin talking to the guys that were there, first off, you find out a lot of what you've been reading is nonsense. These people are guessing and they're, they're crappy guessers. Let's just put it that way. Uh, then you look at the documents and you realize, okay, so they've left out a lot of things here that make it certain that what they're saying actually isn't true. Let me talk about the switch shells because this is one of the prime things that they, you know, these, these shells would not be introduced into evidence and so forth there clearly switched. Now, first off, all the conspiracy writers that say this never name who switched them, how they were switched or when they were switched. They just make the charge. Well, it's because it was six somehow, It was six days. That's how usually what they go to, right? It took six days to identify the shells or bring the shells into evidence or something. Well, no, no. They had the shells, they had the shells immediately. I know what they're referring to. They're saying, well, the, the FBI didn't pick up the shells until the 27th and put them in, in examine, put them into, into evidence. And, uh, but but they, collect, they gathered the shells and they were marked. Now, when, uh, when they, at the scene, before Oswald has even gone into the Texas theater, actually probably around that time, back at the scene, right? Uh, one of the police officers approaches two of the uh, sister-in-laws who were living in that corner house, the Davis sister-in-laws. There's Barbara Davis and Virginia Davis. They're both rather young, 17 and 16, I think. Uh, in any event, uh, they said that as Oswald was crossing within 15 feet of them, as he crossed their yard, they saw that he had the gun open and he was shaking it. Okay, so the idea came out, he's reloading his gun. So they started looking for shells right there. And Domingo Benavides, who claimed that 20 minutes earlier had actually seen Oswald throw the shells, 
Turns out, well, that's when he begins looking for them, which made no sense to me. I always thought Domingo Benavides didn't see, didn't see that at all. Wait, he was reloading his gun after he shot Tibbet? He shoots Tibbet. He's got a revolver. The shells are still in the gun. As he's running around the corner, 30 seconds later, he's, the shells tend to expand so that you can't just plunge him out. So he's shaking, he's banging the, the gun in, in one hand against the other, shaking the shells out, and he's, he's dropping them as he runs around the corner. So initially, Domingo Benavides finds two of them, turns them over to a police officer who's there. There's another police officer, Gerald Hill, who sees the shells. He takes a look. He says, okay, he walks over to the police car, and he says, the shells of the scene indicate the suspect is armed with an automatic rather than a pistol, meaning a revolver. Well, he's not basing that on anything other than the fact that shells are at the scene. He didn't have the information that the suspect was seen reloading his gun. He also didn't know where the gunman was standing when he fired the gun, nor did he know where the shells had actually been recovered. So basically, conspiracy people have now read into that radio report saying, aha, they found automatic shells. And now after they arrested Oswald at the theater, who's got a revolver that fires 38 specials, a different kind of ammunition, uh, uh, it's a frame up. They switched the shells. Well, that's not true at all. Now, later in that afternoon, they found two other shells. Okay? The Davis girls found one, and then the other sister-in-law found the other. They turned them into police. I should say the first two shells that were found couldn't be identified because the officer there, not Gerald Hill, but the officer who showed them to Hill, never marked them. Of course, the citizen wouldn't have marked them. Uh, but... They couldn't find identifying marks on those two shells. So anyway, the critics will, will point to those two shells and say, well, this is proof that they were switched because the officer said he marked them, but we can't find his marks on them. I don't think he ever marked them. In fact, Jim Lavelle told me later that no, he never marked them. And there was no reason to mark them. Now, the other two shells, however, is a complete, there's a chain of custody. I went to the National Archives. I, you have to petition the archives to see physical evidence. They don't just bring stuff out. So I had to petition them and explain to them why none of the literature and none of the photographs that had currently been taken could answer the question that I wanted answered. What I wanted answered is what do the marks inside these shells look like? I published the photos that I had taken at the National Archives in my book. So I finally documented the, the marks that were made. And in the two shells uh, that the Davis girls found, those marks marked by the police officers who took them Mark those shells and identify them as their marks. And you can see the marks in the shells. So there's a complete chain of custody. So even if you eliminate the ones that are controversial, you've got two shells, there's a clear chain of custody. Those are fired in Oswald's revolver, the exclusion of all other weapons. And by all accounts, even the conspiracy people that talk about there being more than one person there at the scene, they all talk about there only being one shooter. See, my Some have claimed there's a second guy at the scene, but there's only one shooter, and the shooter is Oswald. There's absolutely no question about it. So you had a question? My, my theory was always like just like how they got the idea that there was a, a lookalike Oswald in Mexico City, which if you check the 21, uh, 2021 documents that were released um, that were of I, I guess that under the archives now, but they J. Edgar Hoover, there's a memo saying it looked like Oswald was confirmed not to be Oswald. They got that he was in Mexico City when really he wasn't in Mexico City. My thought no, you're is, talking about I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I said my thought is how many people during this time had the same hairstyles like kids do now, have the same clothing styles as they do now. You probably end up mixing up somebody at some point. 
um, whether. But you had 11 eyewitnesses that either saw the shooting or him fleeing the scene. They identified the vast majority. There were a few that said, I can't identify. I'm not sure that it was him. But you had the rest of them that said, no, that's him. Absolutely no question. Ted Calloway, specifically, absolutely no question. He was less than 50 feet from him. He said it was him. There's no question about it in his mind. And so, and we know that the person, even though, even though you may not have been in a position to see the shooter, we know that the guy running by is the shooter. So it's not like you had nine different people, nine different shooters appearing and disappearing and overlapping. So what I'm saying is, is even if you have a couple of people that are, are not as convinced or can't identify with certainty, Oswald as being the shooter, all you need out of those, that whole group is you just need one that's absolutely certain and that you can verify that. And the bottom line is, is we can verify it with the forensic evidence. You know, witnesses can be wrong. Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can get on board with that. But the question is, is, is all of that, is all of that wrong? Well, it's the main reason why I don't trust eyewitness testimonies a whole lot, especially when it comes to conspiracies, is because the only time you can ever really get a true eyewitness testimony that actually works and actually plays into what actually probably happened is if they've suffered from severe trauma before, such as like a war veteran or something like that. Their accountability is held higher more than a civilian's um, accountability. I learned this from doing UAP studies. How many people would see, I saw a UFO? Well, it doesn't really work, but you take more in account when it's a fighter jet pilot or something like that, because they're more experienced than someone that would just be a random civilian on a cell phone it's the same thing when it comes to war trauma that's why the two accounts of the secret service members that heard the shots were listened to more than just all the 70 something people that a witness the president um get shot so what i'm saying here is is when you look at the witness testimonies when you look at which witness testimonies are we taking into effect the one that could remember the most are you just taking one or are you taking on the number of people that were questioned see my issue started to become is when I think you were mentioned in this document as well, too, um, was this is how I came across was the execution style of Tibbet. So apparently they said after Tibbet had been shot three times in the chest, the killer started to leave, turn back, approached the fallen officer and fired an instantly fatal shot into his right temple before taking flight. Does that sound true or is it a little bit different? No, it doesn't sound true. And let okay. me address the other thing. Uh, when you when you're saying that the appeal to authority, authority figures, people that are trained are more reliable, but that's true, but that doesn't mean they're not infallible. You ultimately have to weigh each eyewitness account on its own based on the physical evidence and the others around that were there also are eyewitnesses. As you know, you can get three people and they're not going to agree on anything, but they may agree on the overall arching uh, storyline, but not necessarily on all the details, it's just the way human nature is. So I would answer that and say, uh, although Ted Calloway, I found, I found him to be the best eyewitness, but it wasn't just because he was a war veteran and therefore his perception of the shots, although I think this is true, is better than most. Still, you have to look at what he said and, base, and, and weigh that against all the other evidence to see if it's credible. I mean, you can't just take it on face value. So no, I didn't take as... Uh, a lot of uh, conspiracy writers will do cherry pick evidence, say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the people that agree with me and I'll eliminate the other ones. I was My book looks at, no, I didn't, didn't say you were. I'm just saying that what I did is I took all the eyewitnesses and I weighed them all together uh, against the forensic and the physical evidence. All right. So now in the case of this headshot, 
There's only got one person who said that happened, and that was Jack Tatum. I talked to Jack Tatum several times, 1983. Very credible guy. Very credible. But what he says about Oswald returning and shooting the officer in the head doesn't fit with anyone else. No one else said that happened. The cadence of the gunshots, there is not a time lag. Uh, there would have to be about a 30-second gap between the burst of gunfire and then this final coup de grace. Where the body laid, according to, I talked to the ambulance attendants and Ted Calloway was there, helped load the body. He told me about how Oswald or Tippett was laying on the ground, where he's laying and where that trajectory to enter the right temple and end up back here on the back of the head puts the gunman would have to be standing in front of the car, not on the driver's side, which is what Tatum is talking about. But the most important thing that I thought was interesting that didn't weigh in favor of Tatum's account is that Ted Calloway is almost directly opposite, although a block south of the shooting scene. He said when he heard the shots, he jumped up and sprinted to the sidewalk about a distance of 50 feet or so. He gets to the sidewalk. He looks up the street. He sees a cab driver crouched alongside the car, his cab. And almost instantly that, he sees Oswald jump through the hedges, start running down the sidewalk toward him, cross the street, and so forth. Well, that means... Oswald could not have stayed delayed his leaving the scene by 30 seconds because the way Callaway is describing it, it's almost simultaneous to him running. So you, you get it? Oswald's got to be leaving the scene almost instantly at the same time Callaway's running because they're basically running simultaneously. Uh, so how do, I, uh, how do I deal with the Tatum? Well, I, I talk about it in the book. But I just present it. This is what he said. I can't account for it. I don't know. I don't know why. I've had people say, well, why, Dale, would someone lie? It's like, are you kidding? How long have you been on the planet? So there's a lot of reasons why people lie deliberately. There's a lot of reasons why um, your memory can be skewed. This is Tatum's telling this story 15 years after the fact. I'm certain he believes what he's describing is, is what happened. But what I'm saying is, is that when you weigh it against the forensic evidence and in terms of forensics, I would say the physical layout of the scene and the eyewitness accounts, it just doesn't fit. Nobody else saw what he saw. And I would throw this in. One of the reasons why this even came up is they claimed, they being the House Select Committee on Assassinations, they claimed that Tatum's account explained, this is why they embraced it, it explained this uh, upward trajectory, this unexplained upward trajectory in Tippett's uh, skull wound. It's like, that's not true at all. All of, the, all of the bullets hitting him, except for the one that struck him in, in the abdomen, which there was no trajectory. In other words, the bullet was just superficially under the skin. All the other bullets, the two that hit him in the chest, ended up in back behind the spine, all had upward trajectories, as did the head wound. In fact, they get steeper. So you can almost see that as Tippett's falling, the shots are being fired as he's going down. Now, there's no way to determine the exact order that he's hit in terms of the bullet wounds. But if you based it on the trajectory, if you say, well, all right, as he's falling, then it would be the least steep wound would be the first one. And as they get steeper, that would be the order in which he's being struck. Um, now, I, I'm, I'm convinced today that uh, Tippett is hit in a burst of gunfire 
There's five shots fired. The first one misses. Second one catches him in the abdomen. Oswald makes the adjustment and hits him three more times. One, two, three. And that's the cadence that Callaway heard. Bang, 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 bang. Yeah. Now, I wasn't there, so. Well, I mean. No, but I'm basing it on what I've read and investigated. Yeah, it's good to have you on to be able to talk about it. Because like I said, that's that was my first introduction was looking at that stuff. There's another thing I want to head towards. Uh, too um, but I like that you're able to clarify it as well too especially I trust you over that reading because that's just an article and you're actually telling me about uh, people that you've talked to and people that you know your depiction of it as well too from the research that you've done which is more credible in my opinion than reading some article but what about a connection between Oswald and Tibbet did you hear about that at, at all has that come up with any of the conspiracy heard, theories heard about that heard about the connection between Tippett and Ruby none of that's true Okay. One of the things that uh, I wrote the book in 1998, it first was published. Um, one of Tippett's nieces reached out uh, to me and said, thank God somebody finally wrote a book about my uncle that's true. And uh, through her, I made a connection with the family. And over the last 20 years, became very close with the family. And through that relationship, was able to delve deeper into the family story of J.D. Tippett, how he was raised, what kind of person he was, and so forth. Not just from the immediate family, but from all the other people that they put me in touch with, cousins, friends, and so forth. So I interviewed about 25 people. So in 2013, when the 50th anniversary was coming up, I thought I'd like to update the book and add a section to the book that was not in the 1998 uh, version. The 2013 version, therefore, having the backstory that could finally, I think, seal the deal as far as what kind of person Tippett was. Was, uh, was he in a position to be involved in a conspiracy? Would he have the personality to do that kind of thing and so forth? And, uh, and I did it largely for his uh, youngest sister, who has now passed on in the last year. And uh, Joyce was a great person, really opened up the family and really become closed off. You know, you read about some of the nutty stuff that happened, conspiracy people approaching them approaching her in particular back in the 70s and uh, turning on her in her kitchen, accusing her brother of being part of the big conspiracy. They had to throw him out. This is a well-known person in the JFK research community. And, uh, and so they, they closed off. They, they, they said, we're not going to talk about this to anybody. You know, just people don't want the truth, the hell with them. And, you know, here I come along 20 years later, and I think the only thing that kind of got my foot in the door is I wrote a book without their help that basically laid out the case. And I came to the conclusion that he wasn't involved in the conspiracy. Uh, there was no conspiracy. It was Oswald panicking when the police officer approaches 45 minutes after the assassination of the president and he ends up killing this cop. And it's just that's a tragic situation. But what I found after meeting the family and then being uh, given access to their recollections and his upbringing and so forth. It just convinced me more than ever. Okay, there's absolutely no connection. And yeah, it was the very tragic event that it seems to be, or it seemed to be at the time. The amount of controversy and the amount of like fighting that goes between fact and then also conspiracy, especially around different authors. Like when I'm inviting people on the show like to talk about this topic because like i said i'm younger i'm looking back at this so i have no clue what is real what is not 
Um, I have to rely on other people to tell me what's real or give me their perspective. And some people might agree or disagree, but the fact that we can't have a conversation about it in a lot of aspects, whether how serious it gets or someone's got, no, it's a hundred percent this or hundred percent that I'm like, you guys would definitely like each other if it wasn't the JFK topic. Like that's always my, that's always the thing I toss out there is like so many of these people agree on so many things. Then there's that one thing that branches them off. It really just messes up because even with conspiracies, it doesn't only just hurt like family members that are people that might be involved as part of this conspiracy. Like you were just saying with Tippett, for instance, but it also, it, there's so much fighting that goes on back and forth where someone like myself is just trying to look back and I have no biased view in anything. I'm just trying to bring up the other side's perspective because, you know, that's what they're going to be saying while they're watching it. Why weren't this questions asked? Why wasn't this asked? It's like, I'm just looking for like a, a resemblance of truth. It doesn't matter if it's your truth, if it's this truth or it's that. I just want to know what happened and get all the information possible. It gets so damn difficult. That's why people don't do interviews anymore. Like you were saying with the Tippett family, they wouldn't want to talk to anybody. Why would they? Because you got all these conspiracies out there. And then you making a book without their help, for instance, made them accept you because they were like, oh, this person's actually trying to get the truth out there. And it's like, that's, that's the same thing with me. I'm not like, you can look at one episode. See, I have Dave Mantic on or someone else on, and you can be like, I'm not talking to that person because that person's a conspiracy. It's like, well, no, I'm not. I'm just generally interested in these people's perspectives, your perspective, everyone's perspective on it to understand the matter. Cause it's been 50 something years and we don't have, there's still documents that we don't have. There's still conspiracies. It's still one of these topics where either people stray away from it or they get attracted to it. Even if you join a community of one of these JFK things on Facebook, there's no talking that's being done. It's just fighting back and forth. Like I put up a video of a, a talk I did with someone and they comment like, oh, this is this and this is that. And this is that the moon is fake. I'm like, I get it. I mean, I understand people's like obsession with it, but it's like, it just doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stay at a level playing field of conversation or a talking, whether you have disputes about things or not, you should be able to talk about something like this because in the end, a person, two people died. So you have to look at it from like conspiracies or not. There's a serious issue right there. And that's two people died and they were killed that day. Let's not discredit that. And I think that's what happens when a lot of this fighting starts to happen and conspiracy and all this stuff starts to get leaked in is that you're getting distracted from the main point, which is that to honor these two people. And I'm sure plenty of other people around the world probably died that day. I'm not saying their lives didn't matter. I'm just saying, but around the assassination topic that gets lost in transition. It feels like it goes, it was the Warren commission or it was this or the x-rays or the bullet or Tibbet or all this type of stuff. Yeah. But, don't forget it is the assassination of jfk you're looking into like he did die so you have to understand that and a lot of people don't really see that they get lost on their own little conspiracy or their own little path or perspective rabbit hole and it's like you're missing the essence of like this whole thing which leads on to like maybe that's why we don't have full disclosure on a lot of things now i get there's probably government stuff you can't say but it doesn't help with the conspiracy fire either you have a lot of people that start speculating and that was an issue for me as well too i speculate so much about this stuff i'm sitting there if i'm reading something that he was killed execution style tip it was i start going who does that after they just shot the president and then you tell me no it wasn't killed that way it was killed like this and the bullets are that explains it all for me but a lot of people don't go and try and invite you on or try and talk to you or try and have this discussion or find that information for themselves, they run off with the narrative they built in their head. And to me, I can, I consider that a disservice. So I'm trying my best, maybe not doing the best I, that other people could probably do, but I'm trying. 
and I'm trying to understand it and I'm getting a good grasp of it, I think as well, too. I, I, my whole thing is I'm trying to do a panel with a lot of people coming up about this and I want to take the politics out of it. And a lot of them go, you can't take the politics out of a right wing assassination plot. And I go, that's the thing. Just avoid those words. You like, you got to understand is that when you call it a right wing assassination plot, even if it was a left wing assassination plot, someone killed the president and you have to address that. And I think that's where things get lost is that you lose an aspect because you want it to be bigger than it might actually be. Or there might be some things that you can question. I have some things about the Warren Commission I can question for sure. But also when you look at the aspect of there's a president that's dead, you can't just be distracted from the main aspect of why that is. And a lot of people do either because they want to write something or they want to make a movie or they want to do this. And it's like, I get it. There's a lot of stuff like in a documentary I saw where they had um, Oswald run up to a guy in a car, police officer who's Tibbet, and they they have this full on conversation like this speech that I don't think anybody would have heard unless you were in the car with them. And so this it was all fake dialogue, but they dramatize it up. So it's a Hollywood version. Then they put it out there. Next thing you know, people see that and they go, this is how this happened. It's like, well, no, that's not actually the case. Like I saw a couple of those, I was doing my own research and I was like, okay, so that was all fake dialogue. I just watched. It's kind of like watching, um, Forrest Gump and thinking whether it's based on a true story, I don't know, but thinking that every single word that they said and all these life is like a box of chocolates was true. It's probably not. It's Hollywood, but people don't listen to that. They think of this and they see it and they go, well, that's what happened. Yeah, I, yeah, I stay away from the forums. I didn't originally. I, I remember uh, I was working out at uh, Will Vinton Studios, working on the M&M uh, commercials. And uh, back home, I had a dial-up BBS, you know, 14 baud thing. And uh, you may be too young to remember, but it's not like you were dialing the moon. Anyway, so at, uh, at the studio, they had a, a T1 phone line, which was like a fire hose compared to the garden hose I had. And so, you know, you'd click on something on the internet, which was in its infancy at the time. This is the mid nineties and stuff would pop up. And I'm thinking, okay, so I get now, cause I was thinking, well, how can you have this internet? I mean, I'm at home waiting for a picture to download, let alone a whole website. Well, now I'm seeing, okay, I get it. When the technology gets to the point where everybody can get it like this, where you click on something and the whole thing pops up. Okay, th this is the future. So at the time I was uh, uh, working on the, uh, the, uh, computer reconstruction. Anyway, I had a friend there at the studio and he says, uh, you know, there's these news groups where they talk about all kinds of subjects. I says, really? You mean there'd be like a Kennedy assassination group? He goes, yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, this would be great. People could get together and share documents. You know, I'm coming from the world of mailing something to the National Archives and waiting six to eight weeks for a reply and then mailing in my order and waiting six months to get it. You mean this is going to happen instantaneously? Yeah. So he pulls up and it was altconspiracy.com or something. And I started reading and I looked at them just like this. I looked up and I said, they're nuts. <laughs> and he started laughing. He says, there's your audience. And that was my first clue as to the kind of people that post. The way I equate it is, uh, you know, I was in radio and uh, not everybody had a radio station. Now today, not only do you have a radio station, like what you're doing, Robbie, you've got a global television broadcasting system. Anybody in the world can watch this program. And you don't need a license. You can be anybody. And while I found you reasonable, <laughs> there's a lot of people that just aren't. And they have the access to the same tools. 
So now you get this sea of information and I feel really sorry for people that have to wade through this to try and figure out what's what and what's not. I never got into this with the idea of having an agenda. Uh, I was just curious and I wanted to know the truth. And what I found out was that the truth is better than all the theories because it is true. So you find that things turn on little small things. For instance, the two shells we're talking about being in the Winston cigarette pack. Gerald Hill said, well, I, I had it, I smoked Winston's at the time and I had one cigarette left. I just took it out of the pack and I shook the pack and we put the shells in the pack. Now, I don't know whether that part of that story is true. There's indications that actually the pack was from somebody else and shown to him. But in any event, it's those little details that you find, okay, that wasn't conspiratorial. That was just because the guy, you know, he needed to stop. For instance, Tippett, he's out of the car at 103. You mentioned that earlier. Now, at the time, following his chronology, he's probably at the Gloco gas station. And uh, at that time, police didn't have radios on themselves. They had it in the car. And so you had to be within the range of the car to hear the call. But now think about this. It's been 45 minutes since Tippett had lunch. He's been riding around in his car. He now leaves the car long enough to miss this call. He's at a gas station. What do you think's going on? I mean, it's real simple to figure out. I, I, if you're, if, I'm about to say, if you're saying he's hungry again, I was like, who's hungry after 45 minutes? No, I'm saying he has to hit the men's room. Okay, I gotcha. You know, so it's things like that that are just simple things that, that life turns on. And you, you, when you talk to people, you find out all those little nuances. And that's one of the keys. I remember talking to Gus Russo one time and he said, you know, a lot of these people, they, they read a document and they never leave the library. You have, that's a good starting place, but you have to go out and you have to actually talk to people. Now we're in an age now where most of the people that were principals there, they're all passed on. So you can't do that anymore. But I'm talking about at the time in 1966 and 75, and there were several arcs where the idea of conspiracy really hit the, the mainstream media and was, and a lot of articles appeared and so forth. And these guys were reading documents and speculating. It's like, no, all you have to do is call the guy and ask him. Like I called Gerald Hill and I asked him, did you, you said the shows were automatics. What made you think that? And he, he said, well, I didn't know where the shooting had occurred and the show, the fact that the shells were there and so forth. And I even asked him, I says, um, well, how did you know they were 38s? Cause now a cop could look at that and say, that's a 22, that's a 38. You would know just by looking at the shell. And uh, he said, I looked at him. I says, well, they're stamped right on the bottom. And I'm thinking, well, if it's stamped 38 auto, that would explain why he said it was an automatic. I said, did you look at the bottom? And he said, yes. Well, he may have said yes when he told me that in 1983, but clearly he couldn't have done that, right? So I put that in my book because I wanted people to see the, the chronology, the order in which his testimony of the Warren Commission, here's what he told somebody, here's what he told me and so forth, that you could see that over time, the story is changing. Well, instead of realizing what I'm showing them, I've gotten people that are critical of the book saying, aha, look at it. It's right under Meyer's nose. He doesn't even see that Gerald Hill's admitting that he looked at the bottom of the show. It's like, no, he didn't look at the bottom of the show. That's the point of why I'm writing this so that you can see without me having to say it, that you can, I'm just leading the horse to the water and I'm, but I'm not pushing your head in. So it's things like that that you that you find out uh, that that's the way it was. So 
I guess my point was, is that like you, I was just curious about the subject. And, but I learned early on, you can't go on these forums and get tangled up with these people that don't have a clue. I've always said, Robbie, that you can't have a rational conversation with an irrational person. And you'll find that a lot of people, they get sucked into the subject and then want to pontificate about it. It's become a religion to them. They're not interested in the truth. They're only interested in espousing their own point of view. And a lot of times their point of view is so skewed that you don't even recognize it from the reality. And when you try and explain it to them in a rational way, they refuse to listen. They talk over you. They talk around you. And you go, you just throw up your hands and say, you know what? I don't even need to deal with you because as I've often said, the truth doesn't require your belief. The truth is what it is. The fact that 500 years ago or 700 years ago, the vast majority of the people on the planet thought the earth was flat did not make that so. There's still flat earthers out there. One of my friends is one. So I, I, I get it. And you just, you know, those kind of people, God love them and you move on because, uh, I'm not interested in that sort of uh, nonsense. I'm interested in the truth about uh, the Tippett shooting, the Kennedy case in particular, to me, finding out as much about what actually happened, then explains what didn't happen. That allows me to dovetail into something else you mentioned. You talked about the documents being withheld. There actually aren't that many documents that are still withheld. Think about this. There's 5 million plus pages that have been released. So there's 5 million pages of stuff we know of what happened. Whatever is withheld cannot undo the truth of what we know already happened, right? I mean, you're not going to have five pages over here that's going to undo this five million pages. The stuff that's been released, most of it was redacted material. I'm talking about over the last couple of releases that the archives have had. Uh, redacted material. The material that was redacted was redacted for, redacted for good reason. Uh, privacy issues. They had names of informants. So T1 was this guy. These people are still alive. A lot of them had uh, were, uh, at the time, Fidel Castro was still alive and Raul Castro, his brother, still in power. And so they didn't want to release the names of these people and their families are still in Cuba. So there's good reason for national security that we're not going to release these names. But the, the things that have been redacted, don't undo the things that aren't redacted. So you have a whole document and you've got one line that's redacted. So now they'll release that document and say, now we have the full document. Well, we, we had the full document for the last 20 years. What we didn't have was this guy's name. Does that change anything? Absolutely not. So the, the few things that are still remaining and we're still waiting for the last few documents, everybody- 180,000 documents. And we don't that's know how lot. many pages per document. Right? <laughs> that's a lot. Well, it seems- it seems like a lot, but compare that with the 5 million pages that you haven't read, right? Yeah, but if you're, if you're pages that most people haven't read, if you skewed down 5 million and just picked out the ones that you can't show to the public, and you have 180,000 that you can't show to the public. That is a good amount. But what I'm saying is, is that the vast majority of those documents actually have been released. It's something with Marilyn Monroe. It's something with Marilyn Monroe. They just haven't been released in full. And so what's, what's still in there we haven't seen? The names of individuals have been redacted for privacy purposes. They're not dead. They're still in their 80s. So I'm just saying that when you throw out the, the 100,000 documents of unknown pages and say there's, that's a lot, well, it may be a lot of pages, but it's not a lot of information. It's not going to undo the 5 million pages before. And bottom line is there's no smoking gun document. 
the Assassination Record Review Board, they actually did look at these documents that they haven't released yet. They said, the head, Judge Tonheim, said that there's no smoking gun in this, nor would you expect there to be. Does anybody really think that there's going to be a document? Okay, here it is. We wrote it down. Here's who really set up Oswald. It's right here in this document right here. Well, first off, you know that if anything like that actually happened, there wouldn't be a document spelling it out. So now, will there be some clarifications in this 100,000 documents of things that have been kind of skewed over the years? Perhaps, but no one knows, and there's no sense in speculating about it until we actually have it. But I would say that the bottom line is, is that anybody that thinks that the real truth is still being withheld is uh, uh, not living on the right planet. I just don't have their feet on the ground. I just want to know, um, the only thing I want to know about the document is, why did they have the dress of Jack Kennedy's wife not released until like, I think it's 2029 or 2090 something it's being held with blood still on it. They never cleaned it. It's just being held for like for a really long time. I don't remember if it's 2090 or 20, uh, 2029, her dress, the night that, that she, that, Oh, her dress. I thought you said the address. No, the JFK, uh, when JFK got hit. Her dress. Come yeah. On, yeah. Her come, dress. The yeah, pink dress on. is in a box and the, and so forth. Yeah. Well, why? why? Why so long? Just wash it and put it in a museum. That's my only question. It's freaking racking my brain trying to figure this out. Well, well why, would one, why would you put that in a museum? Why would you put it in a box and hold it for like 90 years? Isn't that even weirder? Well, maybe. <laughs> That's creepy, maybe. man. I think of the movie Get Smart, where Steve Carell's walking into the museum and there's all the old CIA stuff. I'm like, where's that for John F. Kennedy? Well, creepy would be putting it on display, frankly. In my book, that's just my estimation. I don't see that that has anything to do with the, the vast majority. Now, if they're holding back the rifle, here's the rifle and nobody's ever seen it. We're just going to keep that in a box. Now, that would be suspicious. But, of course, they haven't done that. Okay. And, you know, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't go to the archives and request to wear Jackie's dress or his <laughs> jacket or let me hold the rifle and pose with it. Damn. You know, there's just certain restrictions that kind of make sense, I think, in the long run. I guess that, like I said, that was my only thing is I wanted to know why that dress was being held for so long. I don't have any conspiracy behind it. I just think it's freaking weird. And the weird stuff is always what fascinates me. Well, there you go. You don't want to wear the dress? No, I don't. Okay. What else you got? Uh, that's about it. Um, <laughs> but uh, I seriously do appreciate you um, talking to me on my show and giving me a chance to be able to ask some questions. Um, Not a problem. I enjoy coming on and talking with people like you. You seem like a level-headed guy. I did look at your podcast and see the list of other people you've talked to. And, you know, I'd like to get my voice in there. No problem. Awesome. Happy to do it. Well, um, is there a place where people can find any of your links? Do you have any social media? And where can people find your book as well, too? And I'm going to make sure I link it in the description. Well, I write out a, uh, I, I do a blog, which is called JFK Files Blog. It's at blogspot.com. So uh, it's a Google blog. Uh, and so I kind of keep up with the case on that. Uh, if you want to get the book, I would urge you uh, to get it soon. I did do a limited run. We're talking about the 2013 book, this one right here. Uh, so there's less than 100 copies that are available. I know because I'm the one that's putting them up on Amazon and selling them. When they're gone, they're gone forever. If you want a hard copy of that, now there's a Kindle version that you can get for a few bucks. It's basically the same information. But if you're like me and like to hold a book in your hand, you want to get a copy of the book, go on Amazon. For Especially if you have Prime, they'll ship it to you free. And it's the least expensive way to get a copy of the book.
I'll link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting and thanks for listening to this episode. Bye.